Today's reading is Esther chapter 5 from verse 9 to chapter 6, verse 14, and can be found on page 504 of the Red Bibles. There are other languages and versions available at the back, and the page numbers for those are on the screen. Esther 5, starting at verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits, for when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man who the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, The man the king delights to honor, let them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him out on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested, For Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisers and his wife Seresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please do keep your Bibles open to that passage.
And I'll pray for us as we look at God's word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity and the freedom to meet together as a church family, to have your word in front of us and to know you're a God who will teach us, a God who will show us the riches of your grace through scripture. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you speak to each one of us, have a word for us in season. May what I've prepared be of some help to that, Father, that we would live lives changed by your saving love. Amen. Well, the Bible Project stuff is amazing. I was going to suggest we just carry on watching that. Job done. (laughs) You've got the overview, and it is a great resource. So please do keep checking them. I think you can find all their stuff on YouTube. They do overviews of every book of the Bible and some thematic stuff as well. Um, Earlier this week, I met with two of my fellow co-workers. Part of the work I do with Ministry to Business involves helping develop a a small co-working space in a building called Canada House in the city centre. And um, Mark and Paul very kindly uh, offered to come. Well, they didn't offer. They said yes to my invitation. But to have lunch and to have a look at this passage and help me with my sermon prep. Now, both Mark and Paul would openly say that they don't believe what I believe. They wouldn't identify as Christians. So we were reading uh, this chapter. And it is interesting that Mark, having never read Esther before, um, described this section as Shakespearean with all the twists and turns. And one thing that really struck him was these sort of characters with deep flaws that are on show. He said, it's like Shakespeare, you know, drilling down into something quite dark in people. And I said, well, that, that's an interesting connection because Shakespeare, if you think about it, was really influenced by Tyndall's translation of the New Testament and stuff. So, yeah, there's, there's lots of themes and riffs here. It had him hooked. It was clear. I had to stop him reading, actually. He was going on his phone. I was thinking, you're either very slow or you you've gone for miles and he had reached chapter nine. So it was like, that's great, but let's just focus here. And I hope it's got you intrigued and hooked too, as you've been following this series and listening and and thinking and, and working out the application for yourself. You see, the Bible scholar Karen Jobes, who's written a fantastic commentary on this, has said, this section that we're looking at today is arguably the most ironically comic scene in the entire Bible. While Haman plots Mordecai's death, the king plans to honor Mordecai's faithful service, and the king is aided by Haman's ideas of extravagant reward, arrogantly assuming that he will be the recipient, but we, the reader, can see what's going on, and we're invited to see the start of a slippery slide that Haman is on, which will end in his disastrous end. And just to make it very clear, chapter 6, verse 1, is a vital pivot in the whole of the book of Esther. It marks the beginning of the great reversal of fortunes for God's people that we saw starting uh, the plot to annihilate them and that royal edict. There's a light shining. There's a change coming. And there are two clocks ticking. As we've seen, there's the clock ticking with months to go till this royal law allowing a full-blown attack on the Jewish people throughout Persia. And as we saw on the video, Queen Esther in chapter 4 has gone with courage to set her plan in motion to win over King Xerxes and, and somehow undo this evil edict. But there's another clock ticking, one that is on a shorter time frame, just hours counting down to Mordecai's death. He doesn't know about this. Esther doesn't know about this. But both death warrants have been masterminded courtesy of the prime minister, the king's right-hand man, Haman. Haman, the self-absorbed racist intent on ridding Persia of God's covenant people. 
And the irony is that this Jewish community, the people of God, scattered throughout Persia, were there by God's commission. It was part of his purpose and plan. They were supposed to be a blessing to bring God's shalom to their neighbors, even their enemies, which is what we see going on actually with Mordecai revealing the plot to assassinate the king. So it's fair to say this is a dark time in the history of God's kingdom, and the odds seem stacked against his people. And yet we have in front of us here in chapter 6 a clear ray of light, a north star, if you will, of hope in the darkness. And this is real medicine to us today as well, as God's people, in all the joys that you face, in all of the frustrations and sorrows, this is real medicine. Because we have a faithful God whose kingdom plan to bring us into his home will not be defeated. So let's have a look. As the uh, video, the guys from the Bible Project said, we're supposed to work hard and look for the clues. And here's maybe one that we can consider. That God is at work through a sleepless king. Sleep is a good gift, isn't it? Who enjoys a really good night's sleep? Feel refreshed after it. You certainly notice it when you don't get it, don't you? The anxiety levels go through the roof. The agitation, concentration decreases. The smallest issues become massive. Constructive, helpful feedback from family and colleagues is like DEFCON 5 character assassination. Rawr! Just everything goes out of proportion. If someone's sleeping in your house and you're wide awake, if it happens to be the spouse next to you as well, that's infuriating. How can they just sleep like that? I need to wake them up and tell them they're asleep. They're not now. By my bedside, I have a cracking little book, Why Can't We Sleep? by Darian Leader. It's amazing. I read two pages at bedtime and I'm out like a light. But... One of the statistics that stuck out just before my eyes, like that, is that last year, 2019, it was estimated that the sleep aid industry, did you know there was a sleep aid industry? The sleep aid industry is estimated to have generated $76.7 billion. That's a lot of mattresses and pillows, isn't it? So a good night's sleep is not just a great gift, and actually, throughout the Old Testament, you see sleep as a gift of God, but costly. And King Xerxes is going to find that out. Have a look at verse 1 in chapter 6. It just so happens, doesn't it, on that night, that night referred to is the evening, the nighttime after Esther's first feast, King Xerxes could not sleep. Perhaps he shouldn't have had that kebab after, on the way home, after Esther's feast. Always happens, doesn't it? Or maybe they were used, they'd nicked a camel and they were just racing up and down the street outside the palace windows. We just don't know why he's having a sleepless night, though. We're not told. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, uh, go back a couple of hundred years or so, Daniel 2, Daniel 4, he is woken up by a God-given dream and everyone knows about it. Like Nebuchadnezzar, I must have the answers now, bring people in, or I'll kill everyone. You know, that dream, everyone had to figure out. Daniel's the guy who goes, no, we can't do this, but God does, here's the answer. Xerxes doesn't get anything. No dream, no revelation, just can't get to sleep. And it just so happens that the one thing he chooses to pass the hours away is to have his chronicles read to him. Now, this would have been the equivalent of you going through your monthly target reports or going back over your annual appraisal and looking at your KPIs. It seems a very odd choice 
for the king of Persia when he could have had wine, food, and the harems only a phone call away. The government records. Really? It's like BBC Parliament turned up loud. He chose the one thing that's surely going to send him into a deep sleep. I know it's dangerous talking about sleep in a sermon, but let's move on. It just so happens the scribes are reading from a section of the scroll about a foiled assassination plot that happened five years earlier. Xerxes' attention is grasped, isn't it? What honor and recognition has Mordecai received? What do you mean? Nothing. Not even a bottle of red from the cellar? You see, the Persian kings were well known for observing in a culture of honor and generosity. They wanted to show gratitude. And if you think about it, in a fragile, violent political situation, it makes sense to look after the people who have looked after you, doesn't it? So, what's he going to do? Who's in court? Who's around? Who can help solve the problem? He's now wide awake, and there's an urgent to-do list. And it just so happens... Here comes Haman in on the early train to get into work with an urgent to-do list as well. Where does this go? Now, I just want to pause there. Because, as we saw in the video as well, King Xerxes is portrayed as a superpower king, wealthy, lavish in his hospitality, but tyrannical and abusive when his authority is challenged. And here's the interesting thing. A sleepless night in the Bible is an alarm call. He should have looked deeper. It should be a reminder that there is a deeper wake-up call. Now, if he had just spent some time going a little bit further back, maybe 50, 60 years earlier, and read his predecessor, King Darius, he would have found the decree written in Daniel 6, issued a a Persian royal edict, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. This is one of his own kings. Learn the lessons of history. Wake up. Who is in charge? And yet we too sleepwalk through life. Sleep and sleeplessness might be a gift of God, both to push us to grateful dependence, but also to learn the lessons that we continue to need to hear from a loving God. Well, next we see that God is at work to humble a proud enemy. Now, Haman here, the wrathful, is a fascinating character. And uh, Tim's sermon, I hope you've listened to it. If you haven't, go back online, look at the Platt website, you can get the whole series there. But Tim uh, did a sermon on chapter 3, which really unpacked the context and backstory of Haman. It's brilliant, and I would encourage you to, to look at it, particularly because Tim highlights the fact that Haman works as this representative head for the enemies of God. He sums up what it looks like to be an accuser, the destroyer, the Satan type of figure against God's kingdom, against God's plan, and against God's people. So, with Haman in this sorry episode, we see his full colors on display, don't we? Did you feel the emotional roller coaster this guy went on from chapter 5, 9 through to the end of chapter 6? 
One moment he's leaving Esther's feast, he's happy, he's in high spirits. Then he bumps into Mordecai and he's filled with rage, but it's restrained. He goes home, he then massages his ego in front of the family and friends by saying how wonderful he is, let's get the family album out and my GCSE certificates and tell you how wonderful I am. Feeling a little bit better. Oh yes, let's kill him on a high pole. Great! Go in to see the king. Everything's good. My day's going to come together. My plan's coming together. Oh my gosh. As Archbishop Cramner said, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. We see the full extent of Haman's self-absorbed narcissism here, don't we? Have a look at verses 5 to 9. His attendants answered, Haman is in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king. And then we see this extravagant reward. Exactly what we'd expect from someone who is hooked on approval ratings and recognition, and yet there's that dramatic twist. His nemesis gets the robe and the horse, the signs of royal power. This Jewish nobody, a a low-level civil servant working at the king's gate, is now in a position of exclusivity closest to the king. Each proclamation must have stuck in Haman's throat. Don't you think, as he said it out, this is the the man the king delights to honour? He's guiding the horse through the streets of Susa like a common page boy and towering above him, not on gallows, but on the king's stallion, is Mordecai, the man the king delights to honor. And you know what? It crushed him. He knew it wasn't him and he felt it. He wanted to die. He scurries off. Did you see that in verse 12? He's in mourning. He has his head covered. He's filled with grief. Now, I want to point out, uh, Tim Keller, uh, the former pastor of Redeemer New York, has done a fantastic sermon series on Esther. And we preached through Esther back in Platt, um, July 2007. And as part of that, I, I listened to some of his stuff. And, and on this chapter, he does a fantastic um, extended study on human pride. Now, it's obvious, I'm no Tim Keller. <laughs> so I recommend you go and listen to um, his sermon online. But it's intriguing what he pulls out. And it's enough to say that the root of Haman's heart is pride. It's what C.S. Lewis in his pivotal chapter on uh, mere Christianity, chapter 8, which is called The Great Sin. I just want to read you some of what Lewis says here. There is no fault which makes a person more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking about is pride or self-conceit. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. In fact, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me? or shove their oar in, or patronize me, or show off. The point is, each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. Pride 
is essentially competitive. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Well, isn't that a spot-on diagnosis of the condition here in Esther 6? Not just with Haman, but the king, Xerxes. And not just with them, no doubt to some extent in Esther and Mordecai. After all, at best, they're flawed believers. And I'm sure as I read out that description by C.S. Lewis, you pictured a few people that you thought needed to really hear that. I know I do. And at that point, it is a very accurate diagnosis of ourselves. Haman's pride shows itself in this craving approval and recognition. He needs the king to need him. But it's not just the king, is it? He needs the recognition of his enemy Mordecai. He wants Mordecai to see him. And without that, there's no satisfaction. He needs the approval of others. But even if he does get it, that void still needs filling. The pleasure would fade. You see, pride is a tyrant that finds no rest. Now, just to lighten the mood, um, and uh, yeah, this, I appreciate, won't be everyone's cultural cup of tea, but uh, nor is it maybe the high point of film history, but uh, you see this in the Lego Batman movie. You can find the clip I'm talking about on YouTube. And there's a moment in the film where Joker and Batman are chatting, as you do. They're having a tussle, and Joker says, will you save the city or catch your greatest enemy. I won't do Batman's voice. When I tried it earlier, it came out more like a Muppet. I'm not quite sure which one. I think Fozzie Bear probably. But anyway, Batman's midair, hanging on the rope and stops everything and thinks, you think you're my greatest enemy? And Joker says, well, who else drives you to one-up the way that I do? And Batman replies without hesitation, Superman. Joker, What? Superman is a good guy. Are you seriously saying there is nothing special about us? Batman, there is no us. Pan to Joker's face, bottom lip is wobbling, tears starting to well up in his eyes. Batman carries on. There will never be an us. At which point Joker is full-blown, crying, devastated, and Batman fires off a couple of grapple guns and goes off to save the city, leaving a broken, dejected Joker behind. Now, I appreciate it. It's very humorous. It works superbly. But it's strangely uncomfortable because it shows the same powerful desires at work in both the hero and the villain. They are both hungry for approval of someone they admire. Whether it's the Joker needing Batman to be his greatest enemy or Batman needing to go save the city before Superman arrives so that not only does he get the approval of the Lego citizens, but he also gets Superman's approval when he comes out and sees he's done a good job. You see, you can't escape it. Heroes and villains alike, deeply flawed, deeply sinful because of their pride. And we see the same played out, maybe not in Lego, but in everyday real life, don't we? in our workplaces, with colleagues who will go to great lengths to get attention, win and curry the boss's favour, or one-up on other colleagues. 
In family dynamics, there'll be sibling rivalry, where one feels their parent always treats them more harshly or unfairly than the other. You always let them get away with it. Even in the comparison games we play, we look down our noses at people thinking they really need help on that issue or this issue. And religion doesn't make it any better. In fact, it makes pride worse. Because in our churches, we have performance-based indicators. Were you at the prayer meeting? Did you listen to all the sermons? Are you there on time? Whatever it is that we create that shows we're in God's good books, we're higher up the spiritual league table than others. This was brought home to me with the 75th anniversary, a memorial of the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau last Monday. Gave me yet another opportunity to sort of pause and reflect on an opportunity I had to visit Auschwitz three years ago in January 2017. It was part of a pilgrimage with Church of England vicars and it was led by the Archbishop of Canterbury. It was a powerfully emotional and spiritual opportunity. And someone was talking to me about it a couple of months ago, uh, last November, and they just asked, well, what did you take away from it three years on? What did it do? And I thought I could answer that superficially, just go for the bland C of E type answer, or go honest. I went with the latter. I said, actually, the big take home for me was it exposed the darkness in my own heart. It frightened me. Because it asked me the question, what would I have done if I was there? Would I have been a good little soldier, concerned to carry out the CO's orders because of their praise and approval? Or a prisoner, trying to look after nobody but me, perhaps pushing others forward? perhaps saving the scraps of food just for myself, justifying survival to look after number one. What motivations are at work in my heart? It was a pilgrimage that rightly took me to some very dark places, and I'm thankful for it. Here in chapter 6, in God's word, it's as though Haman holds up a mirror to us facing each one of us, and says, do you like what you see before you look down on me? Do you like what you see before you look down on me? You see, Haman, in this chapter, is coming up against God. Even his family recognized it. Did you see that in verse 13? Since Mordecai became before whom your downfall was started is of Jewish origin... You cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. They can recognize that this people group have something or someone immeasurably more superior. Why go up against that? It is a Psalm 2 moment. Psalm 2 verse 10, we read there, David's Psalm. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Exactly what Haman wanted, fear and trembling. Kiss the sun, worship God's king, or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, Haman needs to kill his pride by bending the knee with trembling. Worship is the antidote to pride. Take himself off the throne and worship God as number one. 
And that's a challenge that remains for us here in Manchester today. Will you worship God's King today? Will you hand over your life to his loving good rule? Or will you continue believing that you're in control? Maybe as a Christian here, you're saying, you know, I've still got 51% of the shares here, Lord. It's all, 100%, all or nothing. By his grace, he takes us to those places by degrees and grows us and matures us into deeper uh, trust. But why should you do it? What's the gain? Because true approval, true love, true security comes from trust in trusting your life to the God who works by exalting the humble servant. Sorry, I think that has overflicked. If you could put the um, slide to uh, just the slide that says God at work exalting the humble servant. Brilliant, thank you. Francis Schaeffer, the Christian writer and philosopher, he founded... Uh, Labrie, which was a home where people could come and just discuss the big issues of life and look at God's word. He kept reminding his team, kept reminding people, there are no small people in God's kingdom. It's a brilliant reminder that we serve a big God who cares for all, and so we should, regardless of status, regardless of power or popularity, we should serve. And interestingly, the way to really believe and live generously where there are no small people in God's kingdom is by recognizing, firstly, I am a small person. It is to forget yourself because you're in love with someone bigger. Now, Mordecai in chapter 6 is this small person. He's a passive participant. Things are just done to him. He doesn't know about the plot to execute him. He doesn't know about the reward that will, that will come. And yet this reward, as I said earlier, is a light of salvation. It's a a sign of the reversal. Mordecai's lifted up. He's honored. His enemy is humbled. Mordecai didn't seek glory, but he is vindicated and he is honored. But did you notice the one thing that's really striking about his reaction? Have a look at verse 11. After he's had his ride on his horse, what does he do? He goes straight back to work. He goes to the king's gate. Unlike Haman, we're not told what his emotional state is in. But it seems from that that this reward doesn't change him, really. He doesn't feel on top of the world and, yay, I've made it. And he doesn't feel crushingly low. You see, this honor doesn't own him. It doesn't define him. It doesn't master him. But why is that? Because surely we all enjoy praise. Don't you enjoy it? Don't you acknowledge it when someone says, well done, that was a great job. Thank you so much for your hard work or whatever. When they see what you've done and they acknowledge it, it feels good, doesn't it? So does that mean we shouldn't feel good when someone does that? No, we were created for that praise. And this is why pride gets it so wrong because it tries to get it by cutting God out. You see, for Mordecai, the praise of King Xerxes wasn't the praise of his creator. It wasn't the praise of God. You see in Mordecai, there's a picture of God's greatest king, King Jesus. Jesus who came not to be served, as he said, but to serve, giving his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. He is the eternal king who willingly gave up his glory, giving his life for us. He 
came and lived as us, but perfectly obedient to the Father, without self-absorbed pride. His parade was a stark contrast to Mordecai's, beaten and bloodied, wearing a hideous crown of thorns, wearing a borrowed purple cloak, carrying his cross to his gallows, where strung up and cursed by God for our sin, he took our hell, our punishment, our place, instead of proclamations of honor and praise, Jesus died to jeers and mocking jokes. He didn't feel the delight of the Father, just his holy anger. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And silence is his reply. Darkness is Jesus' closest friend. Psalm 88, verse 18. King Jesus takes a full measure of our separation and shame because we too, like Haman, seek our kingdom first. And yet there, on the cross, is the great reversal of fortunes for humanity. Here is immense grace for all of us. Even today, Jesus, who suffered and died on the cross, is risen and exalted. Darkness does not have the final word. He will return. All nations will recognize him. Philippians 2, many will bend the knee grudgingly as his enemies. Many more will bend the knee in delight and love as his friends. And Jesus longs to welcome you, his friends, home. There is honor and praise for all who belong to me. As I was praying for you this morning, um, praying for Holy Trinity, praying for this sermon and for everyone coming in, I had a sense, specifically, that if you're feeling overlooked, if you're feeling overlooked, know God sees you. If you're feeling overlooked at work or in family life or something like that, and you're just feeling forgotten, you are not. God sees you. Perhaps, another thing that was just put on my mind that you feel you're just going through the motions, whether it's just doing the Christian thing, whether at work it just feels mundane and monotonous and I can't see where God is in that. God sees you. God knows what you're going through. God is there. So be encouraged, but don't be complacent. Come to him. Come to him. Because in Jesus' kingdom, there will be a day when we come face to face with our Savior. And know this, he will receive all our service that we have invested in everyday life as his followers. Small people with countless small things that we offer up in some small way to the Lord of the universe. And do you know what? He looks at that and because of his rich grace and his love, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share my joy. Matthew 25. What praise. What honor. And you know what? When we enter the kingdom of of Christ's glory, it's only then that we'll, we'll start to fully understand and fully experience for eternity this truth that J.R. Tolkien uh, phrased. That the praise of the praiseworthy is beyond all rewards. Whose praise do you live for? Whose well done 
Are you hungry to hear? Knowing that in Jesus, it is yours. Let's pray. The Apostle John writes, See the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Father, may your love crush our pride. Thank you that we have a Savior King who went to the cross, who took hell, darkness, separation, anger at our sin, at our pride, to say, you can be in my kingdom. Father, give us a deeper love for Christ that we would truly be able to sing and pray that my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride because we know you and you, a great big saving God, love us. Amen.